Paul LaRue, a 40-something computer programmer born in Zimbabwe, raised in South Africa, carrying an Australian passport, is the most prolific international criminal I've ever heard of. This guy makes Michael Corleone from The Godfather look like a pussy. In just 10 years, this guy built a criminal empire that would be the envy of any James Bond villain. $120 million cocaine deals in South America, arming 220-person private militias in Somalia, bribing African dictators through ex-Israeli spies, gun running in the Philippines, money laundering in Hong Kong, illegal logging in the Congo, illegal pharmaceutical sales in the U.S., the hiring and forming of international hit squads in Asia, developing the preferred encryption software of ISIS. This guy had a man killed in front of his own wife and baby. And maybe the craziest anecdote from this psychopath's life is that he is now an informant for the U.S. government and the DEA. This is a real guy. He actually did these things. For two years, Atavis.com's Evan Ratliff chased this guy's shadow around the world, investigating the man himself. And all his efforts have produced The Mastermind, a seven-part series that shows the birth of a criminal kingpin and empire. So without further ado, here is my talk with Evan Ratliff. Dude, this shit is unbelievable. <laughs> it's a great story. I know you can go to what mastermind.atavis.com and you can read all seven parts in order or you can be a dickhead and read them out of order. It's up to you, whatever you want to do. Either Anything works. Right. But you got to read it. And I read the first part and I thought to myself, this is bullshit. You never seen that NBC show, The Blacklist? I haven't seen it, actually. I know about it, but I haven't don't, seen it. Don't. 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 It's so bad. Every show starts the same. James Spader is this guy, and somehow he knows every evil villain ever in the history of mankind. And every episode starts with like, um, oh, yes, the Reaper. I met him at a bar in Nicaragua in 1973. He's killed 19 people, eight nuns. And <laughs> this is like the season finale <laughs> starring John Goodman. <laughs> John Goodman would be a perfect Paul LaRue, I think. <laughs> or like a fat Christian Bale because I think he could do the the accent. That's a tough accent. Yeah, the Zimbabwean South African accent is uh, it's tricky. It's a little bit Dutch. It's a little bit British. It's a little bit go fuck yourself. <laughs> they talk like that. I did business down there. Hmm. So when was the first time that you heard this guy's name, Paul LaRue? Well, the first time I heard LaRue's name was actually uh, from the New York Times. So the first time I heard about the story was through what happened to LaRue's deputy uh, enforcer guy, Joseph Hunter, who a lot of people know it's Rambo, that's his nickname. I started following the story when he got arrested. And then for a long time, nobody knew, and I didn't know either, sort of like, there was, it was very mysterious, his arrest. Like, it didn't really make sense. And I had found out there was another case about this meth deal where there's also a big bus, and these overseas bus for the DEA, and they were clearly connected, but it wasn't clear exactly how they were connected. And then in twenty end of 2014, the New York Times reported that there was this guy, Paul LaRue, and as soon as they, you know, released the name and sort of said who he was then it was pretty clear to me who, how those cases were connected, and that's when I really got into to chasing after LaRue. So if, if you're not familiar with this guy, this is some of the things that this guy has done. Bribery of government officials, international drug trafficking, illegal firearm sales, the raising of private militias to destabilize regimes, illegal logging, illegal mining, murder, assassination, prostitution. I mean, besides the fact that he actually created 
a software, TrueCrypt. And this is the preferred encryption software of ISIS. It, he's had his, his thick fingers in so many criminal pots. It's unbelievable. Yeah, he's involved in a lot. I mean, one of the things that's amazing about him is that if you look at, you know, a, a head of a cartel, a drug cartel, let's say in Mexico or South America, oftentimes they're someone who came up through the organization, you know, maybe they killed a bunch of people, maybe they were just really good at it, but they sort of rose through the ranks. But Paul LaRue is a completely self-made man. I mean, he, he started just as a computer programmer, like you said, he did encryption software, he did a number of interesting different things, and then he just built his own prescription drug empire first, and then he turned that into this arms-dealing, drug-dealing cartel, basically, with him at the top. But it wasn't like he this existed and he sort of took it over. He just invented it out of nothing, which is uh, in many ways more remarkable than, than any of these other organizations. Just like I, he set out to do it and he did it. This guy was selling missile technology to Iran. I, I, this is the first time I've heard it. He was somehow one of the deals that, that, that he set up for the DEA because he got arrested and then he basically set up his entire empire. Everybody that he was employed to him, he basically just sent them down the river. And part of this sting was involving North Korean state-sponsored meth? Like, <laughs> yeah, what? They, they, what? And he had, they had done a deal for that before. The reason they could set that up is before he was arrested, he had bought a bunch of meth from a guy, basically a Hong Kong criminal syndicate that was getting it out of North Korea. And so then after he was arrested, you know, he told the DEA, hey, I can get you this North Korean meth of these people with connections to North Korea. And that's obviously like a big, you know, high profile thing for the DEA. So then, you know, he set up, he, he got back in touch with the same people who had helped him before. Because after he was arrested the whole time, he's pretending that he's still at large and the DEA is helping him you know, email people and call people and give this impression that he's just gone underground. And so he contacted those people and set up a, a meth deal for, they had two tons of meth out of North Korea, uh, or at least they claimed to have two tons. And uh, they set up this whole deal. And then when it finally was ready to go down, the DEA was there waiting for them, Damn, Tyler. Bro, that's like the first time I've ever heard that. North Korean state-sponsored meth. I mean, you know that they're really desperate there, but Jesus Christ. Like bringing in Walter White types to teach the North Koreans how to make dope shit. But I mean, it, when you're desperate like that, why not? Yeah, it was. It was It was a big part of the you know their way of getting hard currency, I think, for a while. They supposedly cracked down on it. So they, they did get rid of a lot of the meth labs, but... A lot. Some people. I mean, it's hard for anyone to really know what's going on. But some some people who have you know researchers have looked into it say that that was just for show. And even in this case, on some of the wiretaps, the guy who's getting the meth out of North Korea says, "Yeah, yeah, they shut down the labs, but we still have a lab. They still let the one that we use run." So they probably tax it. Oh, I'm sure, if it is running, yeah, it's it certainly would be benefiting the government. It wouldn't it wouldn't be possible for it to exist otherwise. So you have a guy like a state North Korean guy. Like, how does that work? Like, he shows up to the lab. He's like, "No, this isn't good enough. We are the blue meth." Like, he shows up. Like, he's like quality testing and like looking at things. That's just odd. North Korean state sponsored meth. But this is this guy. You peel back the layer more and more. You learn about this Paul LaRue character. You just can't believe that this guy actually existed. Yeah, well, I think part of that is that he, you know, he built that persona for himself. I think some people that work for him 
say that he wanted to be the biggest. So he wanted to be a notorious criminal. He wanted, when he got caught, he wanted it to be on CNN and all this. So, you know, so he, to a certain extent, he probably didn't, I mean, he was making hundreds of millions of dollars just selling prescription drugs. So he didn't really have to get into, you know, cocaine shipments out of Ecuador and Peru and arms shipments, you know, deals with Iran and arms shipments out of Indonesia. He didn't have to do any of that. But I think at a certain point, he just became, it seems like, obsessed with just being the biggest and involved in the most things. And anything that he could touch, he would say, all right, let's do that. Gold smuggling, you know, just like an endless array of of criminal activities. It was like he watched the entire James Bond box set on acid and then took it to heart. Yeah, something like that. He just became this super ultra villain. And he was operating in kind of a gray area, like you say. He was selling prescription pills, making a lot of money, dumb money, like... Government estimates are like 250 million to 400 million a month, which could be inflated because they like to do that for prosecutions. But he was making a lot of money. But I, that's the thing. There was some kind of switch that happened in like the mid 2000s where he went from this gray area to becoming a murderous, assassinating kingpin. Do you know why that happened? I can't say I know why exactly. I think, you know, different people have different theories about it. So there's. I've never, I've never met with Paul Leroux. He's still in pretty contained U.S. custody. So people who were close to him, some of them have some theories about, you know, his upbringing. And you can always look back at someone's background and say he, you know, he was adopted and he found that out late in life. And people talk about that as something that he would mention all the time, not trusting people because of what happened with his family and because he was, it was concealed from him that he was adopted and, you know, saying things about his mother giving him up. So, you know, I think there's a lot of psychological factors that go into it. But I think at the same time, when he started making so much money, like that's what he had wanted to do. Like he got into online gambling briefly and he got in and then he got into prescription pills. And then somewhere along there, uh, he just sort of lost his head and he sort of lost his, the thread, I think, of why he was doing it all. Like it just became a thing in and of itself. It wasn't like really he had enough money. It was more about making everything bigger. And then, of course, when you get into these criminal activities at that scale, like the murder and the violence just sort of follows. Like, I mean, his was completely out of control because he was murdering people or having people murdered who were just kind of like like real estate agent who yeah. had a deal gone wrong. It's just kind of like there's other ways to deal with that problem. But once he got wrapped yeah, up you, you in think? the power of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. This guy – and also you mentioned in the article that one of your contacts, this Lulu person, Evan and his team started reaching out to people to try and figure out who this guy was. And an individual, a family member of his, got back to you named Lulu and you kind of figured out who he was you know, after a while. And he gave you a lot of different information. And one of the things he told you was that Paul LaRue's father was a United States senator. It wasn't his father. It's actually his uh, maternal grandfather, father on his uh, from his birth mother. Okay, so, that's still crazy. Yeah, it's crazy, and actually, like, remarkably difficult to figure out who that is uh, because we don't know the name. Like, right? Uh, you know, it could be anyone over a pretty long period of time. But yeah, so that was one of the things. I mean, Lulu was someone who gave me a lot of information. And not all of it I could verify, mm. including that. You know, some of it was very, very difficult to verify. But at the same time, Lulu also gave me 
things that were completely verifiable, including documented evidence. I mean, he had copies of passport, fake passports that LaRue had, fake birth certificate that LaRue had, like stuff you could only get if you were close to him, photos of him. So he was a very, very reliable and trustworthy source from everything that I could verify. And then there were some, some particularly crazy things that came out of it like that, like this, like the tie to a U.S. senator, which, you know. <laughs> what? It's just like, like – It's like how deep does the rabbit hole go? Yeah, yeah. At the beginning, I – you know, I've worked a lot of different stories about con men and, you know, you want to be as skeptical all, as possible all the time. And I'm very skeptical as a journalist. And I would hear these stories and just say, come on, like, <laughs> this that's is ridiculous. ridiculous. Like, there's no way that's true. That sounds like it's out of a movie. And then three or four of them get verified. And then it really shakes your skepticism. And you start to say, like, well, what can I, can I believe anything about this guy? And so part of it was a process of weeding out between all of the insane stories that I heard, some of which never even made it into the, into the series because they were just, they were, I couldn't find enough and they were too crazy. And Lulu was a family member. And at one point he was scared to death for his life because he thought that Paul was going to kill him over some deal gone bad. That, of, or, yeah. So this is, this is the extent to this guy. He would kill his own family. I think it was it hit home for me when he killed the ship captain who was shipping illegal weapons from Indonesia to Philippines in front of his wife and his kid. Yeah, that was that was dark. Because that, you know, up until this point, it was so it was so crazy that my brain couldn't even wrap around it. It was like a movie script. So I was looking at it in that lens, and then when I heard that, it just and then the way that he talked about it afterwards. You know, so cavalier in transcripts. I forget he was talking to one of the Israelis that you brought up. One of his employees was was talking to him. And he said, well, you know, you killed the guy in front of his wife and kid. And Paul was like, well, I didn't mean to do that, right? He was like, I didn't kill, I didn't kill them. I mean, the wife got shot. Like one of the bullets went from her husband into her. But she, did, she survived and she's okay. But yeah, that, that attitude. And that was one of the things I was trying to kind of move back and forth between in the series. Because... Obviously, people who are interested in, you know, quote unquote, true crime, or there's so many things on TV, like Breaking Bad. And like, I love all those things. And I'm really interested in the interworkings and like, why someone would do all this. Yeah, me too. But it's also you want to remember that there's real people involved. And in like, I mean, this is really, really terrible things happened to people and their families, because of their involvement with this person. And so it's good to try to remember like, wow, I mean, this is like that the family of that ship captain is like devastated and basically living in poverty because you know he was murdered because he was involved with this thing so yeah there's like genuinely horror uh involved in this as well and that's how it starts you start the series and and I and I really appreciated that with the murder and Evan flies from New York to the Philippines to investigate last December 2015 to talk to a Filipino FBI guy about a murder, but it's not a gang murder. It's not a cocaine cartel. It's this seemingly, I don't want to say unimportant, but small, you know, real estate agent from the Philippines named Catherine Lee. I mean, this girl has no nefarious connections whatsoever. And all of a sudden you were flying there to try and figure out a connection between her and Paul LaRue. Why did you fly there? What, what was that connection? What were you looking for? Well, I had seen in the in some of the court files related to this guy, Joseph Hunter, the enforcer for Paul LaRue, there was just a mention of a real estate agent who they had murdered. So he, this Joseph Hunter bragged about it at one point. He said, we had this real estate agent killed and a little bit of the circumstances about it. So 
then uh, I and like a researcher that wor was working with me here were just almost like scouring the world for real estate agent deaths. You'd actually be surprised how many real estate agents are murdered all over the world because we were going through like when it's in India and like we didn't even know what country it was at first. And then we we found out it was the Philippines and then uh, actually it was uh, Natalie Lambert, this woman that I was working with, this young reporter who actually figured out, found like a tiny clipping in a Filipino newspaper that said this woman, Catherine Lee, was murdered and it matched the, the description of how... Uh, how we had read that she had been killed in the court file. So I went over there to investigate it, and the the FBI, what they call, called the MBI there, which is their FBI equivalent, they were completely mystified by the crime because this woman was, she was executed. It wasn't just like, she wasn't robbed, she wasn't sexually assaulted, she was shot twice under each eye at close range, and for years they couldn't figure out what happened because, like you say, she didn't have any connections to crime she wasn't involved in anything that they could figure out. And so they were just baffled by it until what I discovered when I went there is that the DEA had shown up in 2015 and they had said, we have suspects for this crime and we're trying to figure out if they match descriptions that you have. So they eventually like got together and did the investigation, some of it together. Um, but it turned out that uh, allegedly these guys are still uh, facing trial, but two guys from North Carolina were allegedly hired by LaRue and Joseph Hunter to fly to the Philippines and murder this real estate agent over essentially a bad deal about a beach house. Jesus, man. That's just crazy, bro. And you asked for the police file of this woman from one of the detectives in the Philippines, and he gave it to you, and you're looking through it and you're digging, and then you finally see the DEA card. You must have been like, what the hell? Why is a special agent from the DEA coming out to see about this murder? Then you probably knew you were onto something. Yeah, then, then it was clearly connected. I mean, that, it was truly a remarkable moment reporting-wise because normally, I mean, you could, here, the police just don't give you files, first of all. You generally have to file something to get them or they might appear in a court file or what have you. But... In the Philippines, you know, someone just had the file and we were kind of riding along in a van and they were leafing through it because we were going to the crime scene. And I just asked, hey, can I take a look at that? And then on one page, there's Xerox copies of cards of DE agents who have come and then notes from the conversations that they had with the DE agents. One of the notes said, Hunter ordered, quote, Hunter ordered, which is like basically the case uh, that, that Joseph Hunter ordered this real estate agent to be executed on behalf of Paul LaRue. So it was pretty incredible to see that they had just made that connection, you know, a few months before. Wow. So this Joseph Hunter guy, July 2013, South District of New York, U.S. Attorney's Office, filed a sealed indictment against Joseph Hunter with conspiracy to murder a law enforcement agent and was accused of forming a team of international assassins to take out a snitch and a DEA agent on behalf of a Colombian drug cartel. <laughs> Which is just like more I, – I can't believe that. That turned out to be the sting operation that Paul LaRue set this guy up with. Right, exactly. And, and you kind of you kind of figured it out. So it turns out Paul LaRue had been, been investigated for six years by the DEA. And they finally got him in 2012 in a meth cocaine swap deal. And he flipped basically on the plane over from Liberia. He was in Liberia. I, I could go on and on. <laughs> it's just it's like it's so crazy. He, he, he flips on the, on the plane ride from Liberia back to New York and basically says, I'll do whatever you want just to help me out, you know, keep me out of prison. And 
And basically, in an amazing deal, the government went top down. Because usually what the government does is they'll get a low-level guy and then try and flip him and then get to the boss. You build your way up. But this was like a top-down approach. Like, what? Like, this is the weirdest thing. You got the boss and now you want to get everybody else? It just doesn't make sense. And then it turns out that he developed this software that ISIS uses for their encryption. And that's got to be his trump card. Why would they make a deal with him? Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, that's a big question. I. I would say that question is still. I'm still trying to solve that question, and I. It probably won't be solvable for a while. But I mean, he's. He had three things when he got arrested. One is that he wrote the software E4M, which is the basis of TrueCrypt, which is obviously something the U.S. government's very interested in trying to break. Um, I think it's an open question whether how helpful he would be to to them breaking it, just because unless he actually was involved in putting a backdoor into it. He could only help them to the extent that he is a great encryption programmer. He's a, he's a brilliant programmer. He's a smart guy. So he could potentially help them with it. He knows the ins and outs of it. So that's possible. The second one is that he had sold some missile technology or sold some sort of technology, which I think is missile technology, according to a couple of sources, to Iran. So he could offer them contacts on that front. And the third thing was North Korea, which he didn't have really a direct line into North Korea, but he had this North Korean meth. And that's obviously something that would interest them. So what combination of those three things or maybe some other thing uh, led them to make this uh, pretty sweet deal uh, for him? Uh, where he got out from under really the murders in exchange for pleading guilty to the you know a math, a math deal and a couple other things. I'm not sure which of what combination of things led them to give him that deal. And the government knows that he committed these murders. He's testified in open court, so it's not a secret. They they know that he's done it, but he agreed to do this this thing to set up all his own employees. Basically, he would be pardoned of every other crime that he's ever committed as long as he told them the truth about the crime. Yeah, I would say quite pardoned as much as right. he won't be charged specifically with those crimes. He, a judge can still say, well, you also admitted seven murders, so I'm, I'm going to give you more time. During the sentencing. Yeah, but that's totally down to the judge that, that he ends up before and how they view it. But he will not be – he's not going to be charged with murder. And the, one of the craziest things is that the – People who are who carried out one of the murders, the real estate agent murder, they're charged with murder, and the person who ordered it is not charged with murder, which is a very unusual circumstance. But with this story, it's not surprising, right? Because this guy is just so crazy. I mean, how many get out of jail free cards do you have? He was smart. There's no question. Like he is very systematic in his way of thinking. Didn't he father a child in Brazil? So he, he would not be able to face extradition because Brazil has a, a law that says that if you have children with a Brazilian in Brazil, you can't face extradition to other countries. Yeah, it makes Jesus. it much more difficult. So, Damn. yeah, he's, he, he's supposedly paid a woman to, to carry this child for him or to follow, to follow this child with her. And that was part of his kind of escape hatch uh, in going to Brazil and then making it hard to extradite him. And it's one of the reasons why they lured him out of Brazil to ultimately arrest him. Let's say they lured him to Liberia where uh, there's not, there wasn't even any extradition. They basically just like put him on a plane. So the Snowden files, what they showed was that the NSA in the United States, they cannot break this TrueCrypt software. It, they That's have right. a very difficult time trying to get this thing. And this is, again, the preferred method of ISIS using encryption. This is the one that Paul LaRue, he basically wrote the program for. In May 2014... 
the anonymous developers of TrueCrypt announced that they would no longer vouch for its security or support the software. <laughs> this is only two years after this guy was arrested. Yeah, there's a big That's crazy, that. bro. Yeah. You know? I mean, the timing's very coincidental. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, man. Coincidental. Nobody really, nobody in the community knows currently exactly why. I mean, there's a very innocuous explanation for why they would stop supporting it, which is they just, the developers are working on it, just got tired of it. And sure. there's other description out there. And so they just said, we're not going to do this anymore. But it's been out for <laughs> a number of years. It's been out for like 10 years, right? It's been out for 10 years. And the. The developers have always been anonymous, and uh, some people, you know, floated the have floated the idea that Paul Larue was one of them at one point. I mean, he explicitly the software is based on software that he wrote. E4M, so right? No question of that. The only question is how did he continue to be involved? Did he fund it, or did he have nothing to do with it over the years? There's not much evidence right now either way. I mean, he in his brief court appearance, he claimed that he did not develop TrueCrypt itself. Mm. So. But, you know, who knows? Right. What can he tell the government about the anonymous developers? Yeah. And how hard can they put the screws into these people to give them up the recipe, how to break it? It's just, it's just unbelievable. So when is the movie coming out? This is screaming for Hollywood to do this. Yeah. I mean, we did option it for, for TV um, oh. to, the, uh, to the Russo brothers, who are the guys who just did uh, – Captain America Civil War. Whoa! It's out now. So, um, so yeah, who knows? I mean, that's, that's the limit of my you know, involvement in that. It's like maybe they'll make something out of it. Maybe they won't. You don't know. Take a really long time. So uh, I'm actually I'm writing a book about it. So I'm cool. more focused on the journalism part of it. And I'll let them figure out what they, if there's a real TV show in it or not. How does that work? Do they call you up? This is like somebody from the Russo Brothers people. I'm like, hey, hi. Um, we read The Mastermind, and uh, we like to uh, buy the script. Like, how does that work? Or do you have like a lawyer do that? Uh, like an agent, agent who do that. But yeah, that's basically how it works. Is that once the story gets out, then either they send it to people, or or people call from different production companies or studios or whoever. And you know, someone from their office said, hey, we're we're really interested in this, and. We'd like to talk about what we could do with it, and then you just kind of go from there. And I think we'll stop right there. Jim's Velt is available on SoundCloud, on iTunes, on Sprecher, and on Stitcher. If you like this, please share with all your friends and family. I would greatly appreciate that. And also a comment and a rating on iTunes. For Jim from Jim's Velt, I greatly appreciate you guys for listening. Thanks again. Peace. I'm selling you my peace.